Sunday, Florida reported the highest number of new coronavirus cases of any state since COVID-19 came into existence. Donald Trump demands that the kids go back to school this fall, pandemic or no pandemic. And his administration is trying to sideline its leading infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. And today, we're talking to Dr. Fauci. In public health, public communication is one of the most important things to get right. It's particularly hard, though, when we're actively learning about the disease we're messaging about, leaving us changing the message over time. This was me back in March. If it makes folks feel better to wear something that they've sewn over their mouth, fine. Um, but I just don't want people to be under any sense that this thing is actively protecting you um, just because it's not. Yeah, I was wrong. To be fair, I wasn't the only one. WHO only recommends the use of masks in specific cases. Do not buy, do not wear masks if you're healthy. People in the general public shouldn't be wearing them. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We had thought at the time that masks were, at best, minimally effective to preventing transmission, largely because we didn't know that the virus could be spread by people who didn't have symptoms. After all, most coronaviruses, like SARS and MERS, can't be spread that way. And we thought that a national run on masks would leave frontline healthcare workers who interact all day with people who do have symptoms without the PPE that they needed to care for their patients. Well, they didn't have that PPE anyway, but that's another story. And then science happened, and voila, we learned that a lot of spread happens through people who don't have symptoms at all, and that cloth masks were in fact very effective to reducing transmission. So we did our best to course correct. And I want the American people to understand we follow the science, and when we learn more, our recommendations change. I've said consistently for the past three months, wear a face covering. It helps slow asymptomatic spread. It will help us reopen churches and schools. I've been asking him to do it for weeks. Just wear the mask. This is real. And it's a problem. And we have to do our part. But that about face left people thinking that public health experts and authorities either didn't know what they were talking about or worse, involved in some sort of conspiracy. Which gets to a bigger issue, that we don't do a good job communicating science in the first place. As we've talked about throughout this podcast, science is not a body of knowledge. It doesn't say anything. Instead, it's a process by which we come up with hypotheses, test them, and then keep the ones that hold up to testing. And when a hypothesis, like, say, masks don't reduce disease transmission, gets destroyed by the evidence, we drop it and adjust our thinking. But because we don't do a great job of helping non-scientists through this process, people leave confused. And then there's the problem of click-selling, news that is alarming, like conflict, sells, and tends to overwhelm our attempt to move more mundane but ultimately more important messages, like how to protect yourself. All of this makes public health communication really hard to do. As someone who spends most of my time thinking about how to explain really complex public health knowledge in a digestible way, either here or on CNN or even to friends and family, I admire people who seem to do it effortlessly. And nobody does it better than our guest today, Dr. Anthony Fauci. If you're a health policy nerd, which I am, Dr. Fauci was a legend well before this pandemic. He is the director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. But this isn't his first rodeo. America first got a taste of his incredible skill of messaging with scientific rigor, empathy, and relatability back in the 1980s, when a very different infectious disease was ravaging Americans. We don't know a lot about AIDS, but we also know an incredible amount about it from our experience over the past three or four years. 
Dr. Fauci was educating Americans back in the 1980s when homophobia and ignorance of science left fearmongers to stigmatize HIV. Then, as now, Dr. Fauci was there to bring the science forward and empathize with the victims of HIV, which helped to dispel myths about the virus and clear the way to treatment discoveries that have saved millions of lives. He was instrumental in constructing the PEPFAR program under the Bush II administration and in the international Ebola response under President Obama. As a physician, epidemiologist, and public servant, he's someone I've looked up to for a long time, and I'm glad to welcome him to the show. After the break. So let's jump right in. My guest today is somebody who needs no introduction. If you've uh, watched the news or heard the radio or read the newspaper, you know uh, who Dr. Anthony Fauci is. Um, thank you so much for taking the time, Dr. Fauci. I, I got I to gotta ask, I, I know you just came in from a meeting from the White House. What are your days like right now? <laughs> They're really rather hectic. Uh, I kind of divide them in the morning. You know, my, my primary job, my day job, as I refer to it, is as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And we're very deeply and heavily involved right now in the development of vaccines and therapeutics. Mm -hmm. So things are really going hot and heavy. So I spend the first half of the day in the morning and into the early afternoon um, here. And then I generally go down to the White House for the task force meetings and discussions with the vice president, with the task force throughout the afternoon. And then into the evening, we come back and stay here till the wee hours of the morning. Today, mm -hmm. we did it backwards. Today I was down at the White House this morning, and that's where I was literally 45 minutes ago. And now I'll be here in my office for the rest of the afternoon. So we've sort of switched it. So Dr. Fauci, you're telling me at 1.14 p.m. you're just now getting into work? <laughs> that's right. You know, I'm one of those late, later risers. You know, uh, no, nothing going on right now anyway. <laughs> um, it seems like you're burning the candle at both ends. And, you know, you, unlike me, you're a bit of a spring chicken. So that's a good thing. But but honestly, what um, what keeps you motivated on these long days? Uh, you know, I can't imagine you've been doing this almost for six months now. How do you keep your motivation? Well, you know, it really is. It, it, you have to be up to the task of the seriousness of the problem. It's so clear that we are in a, in a very difficult situation globally and in the United States. I mean, we're having a, a massive outbreak. Currently, literally, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the flare-ups in the south and southeastern part of the country. You know, the four states, California, Arizona, Texas, and Florida, are accounting for 52% of all the new cases. So it's really concentrated in an area that we've got to put that fire out. You know, it's unfortunate everybody wants to and needs to understandably try to reopen because we can't stay locked down forever. But as we've seen in the attempts to reopen, at least in the states that are involved, it hasn't turned out well. We've had surging of cases. Now we have increase in hospitalizations. And then soon we'll be seeing some increases in deaths. Those are the things we've just got to turn around that trend if we're ever going to successfully open in a way that could get us back to some form of normality. So we're in a very critical period right now. You know, I just, you, you can't slack off because this is, you know, this is really, uh, it's crunch time now. It's life or death. You know, what, one of the things is, as someone who spends a lot of my time thinking about how to communicate complex topics in science and public health, is that, you know, we've had this really complex moment where the science is unfolding in real time. We're dealing with a virus that we've never as a, a species dealt with before. And 
the recommendations that we make to people have changed over time. You, you are a remarkably gifted communicator, honed over a long time, really thinking about how to communicate these complexities to people. And I, I want to ask you, you know, what is your process as you think about relaying complex, quickly changing messages to a public that is both scared and frustrated and, you know, in their minds sick of this already? Well, I think the first thing, there are a couple of guidelines that I've used now for decades. And one of the things is that you've got to speak in a way that people can understand what you're talking about. Often, scientists, physicians, you know, health authorities speak in such an archaic way that, that, that they, get, they confuse the public. You've got to be really very consistent and very, very clear in what your message is. The other thing is you've got to maintain credibility. So you've really got to tell things as they really are. You never want to frighten or overly and inappropriately alarm the public, but you should not keep from the public information that they really need to know. Mm-hmm. Because if you do either of those, sugarcoat it or over-exaggerate it, sooner or later people are not going to listen to what you're saying. And you also got to be consistent. And then also don't be afraid if you do not know the answer to something, to say, I don't know the answer. One of the worst things that you can do when you communicate is to guess. Mm. There's no room for guessing. <laughs> you either you know or you don't. And if you don't, you say that you don't know. Mm. And I think that's one of the things where some people get in trouble at, because they can speculate, and then the speculation gets taken as dogma, and then you really have mm. inaccuracies. Yeah. And that's the, you know, that's the interesting thing. One of the, the, I think the the frustrations we've had in in communicating to the public, the things that they personally can do to protect themselves has been around masks. A lot of the guidance early on was that masks should be spared for for professionals on the front lines, um, which led to this message where masks weren't effective. And now one of the most important things we tell folks to do is, is, is wear a mask. Where do you feel like we went wrong on that message? And, and what could we have done better in terms of communicating that message early? You know, that is really a very good point. And, I, and I'm glad you brought it up kind of as the prototype of messaging, because it was one of those things that has really led to confusion and is, is interfering now credibility of, of the fact that we really do need to make sure we, ma- we, ma- we wear masks universally right now. So early on, the communication, and I think the communication mistake, was that we were trying to make sure that the healthcare workers had enough PPE, including masks. Mm. It was at a time very different from now, when there really was a critical, real and potential shortage. And we wanted to make sure that we protected the healthcare workers who were every day putting themselves in harm's way to take care of individuals. Mm. What got, I think, a little bit misrepresented in that message was not that it was just we wanted to preserve them, but they don't really work that well anyway. <laughs> so that was the mistake because, in fact, there's no doubt that wearing a mask mm. is better than not having a mask for the general sure. public. And then what happened subsequent to that is mm-hmm. that a few things evolved which made it even more compelling to wear a mask. A, mm-hmm. data started to come out that it really is effective before it was kind of wishy-washy, the data. But then you did meta-analysis of studies of wearing masks and not. It became clear that it's effective both 
to protect me from infecting you and also to protect you from infecting me. Mm-hmm. Secondly, when it became clear, and this I think is the real compelling part, that we have a considerable percentage of infected individuals are without symptoms, mm-hmm. 20 to 40%. Yeah. Sometimes mm-hmm. in some studies, 45%. Which means that many people are inadvertently and innocently not knowing they're infecting and spreading the infection. So the idea about having somebody wear a mask both to protect themselves, but just in case they may be an asymptomatic carrier. That's right. It's, it's almost as if we should say everybody should assume that you're an asymptomatic infected person. And that's, that's the right. reason why you should wear a mask. Yeah. But unfortunately, yeah. that misstep in the beginning, yeah. when the connection between saving a short supply was equated with they don't have much benefit anyway, so why wear it? We need, yeah. to, I mean, that was the misstep. And you're right, it, yeah. it, it made it now a real challenge in communication. Yeah, and of course, the other challenge has been, you know, and, and you and I both know this, that public health is always political because we're making decisions about what to do with scarce resources. And that is the question of politics. But the challenge has been that the, the virus, the pandemic have been politicized substantially. And, you know, I was a health commissioner for some time before I actually left uh, to run for office myself. And I didn't always agree with a lot of the political decisions that were made by my boss. And I can imagine in, in you've worked in multiple uh, different administrations, and I'm sure that there are some with whom you have not agreed. Um, how do you, uh, in the face of politicization by uh, a president, how do you maintain a focus on the public's health? And how do you walk a line that allows you to maintain integrity to the science while also staying away from some of the explicit politics of the moment. I, I know many of your colleagues haven't done it nearly as well as you have. Um, so, you know, what's the secret? And then the other question is, have you ever just at some point wanted to throw your hands up and walk away and just say, you know what, at this point, like, I'm done with this? Because I think that it's, the, 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 the issue at hand is so important that I think walking away from it is, is not the solution. I think that would just make things worse. Well, what I what I try to do, and I and, and I have been, really been successful, as you say, I've mm. I've I've now advised six separate presidents, all very different individuals, uh, also coming from different perspectives, but also being being an administration or a presidency at different times in our history, which required mm-hmm. you know different types of approaches. You know, nine eleven was very different with the anthrax attacks, the pandemic flu and Ebola and Zika, and now COVID-19. Mm-hmm. The thing that I've done and been able to successfully navigate sometimes these very choppy waters is stick always to the science. Don't ever let anything that even smacks slightly of any ideology get in the way. You've got to just stick with the science, present things, advice, recommendations, or what have you, based on evidence and science. And if that clashes with something that is political, then then don't get involved in any of that. Just continue to stick with the science. And it works. It really does. Yeah. Well, we, we admire you for it. And I, I want to tell you, you know, one of the hard parts about this moment is that 
it, it feels like science itself has been politicized. Um, expertise itself has been politicized. You talk about, you know, a general anti-science bias in America right now. And part of that is that I think as scientists, we haven't done a great job communicating what we do to the public. Part of that is also uh, the fact that, you know, when science gets in the way of a political agenda, sometimes politicians will just throw away the baby with the bathwater. What do we need to do to take that on? And what do you think is driving it? Well, I think it's no secret that we have a lot of divisiveness in, in the country right now. I mean, anybody who is witnessing what's going on, I mean, at, at, at virtually every level. Um, I, I think that's something that's not going to be easy to change. Um, and that's the reason why sometimes things get discussed in the context of, of differences that have nothing to do with science. I mean, the whole issue, I think, that you mentioned... Mm about masks mm -hmm. really is something that, you know, has become almost a statement, which it really shouldn't because it's, it's a total public health issue. It's not a statement about how you feel about anything from a political standpoint. So, I mean, that's a typical example of that. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, one of the, um, one of the challenges I've always had as a scientist in the public space is explaining the fact that science is, is not a body of knowledge. You know, science isn't like the Bible that just says a certain thing. It is a process by which we ask a set of questions and then answer them by trying to sideline our bias and throw everything we can at the answer that we thought was correct. Sometimes we prove that answer wrong, like we did with masks. And trying to communicate that at baseline is really hard because a lot of folks will say science proves or science says. If we really wanted to invest in better science understanding, what are the things that we would do to start from the very bottom so that, you know, when we're in a pandemic situation, it makes jobs like yours and mine a lot easier because people have a better baseline understanding of how the process works? Yeah, I, well, I think you, you actually just said it a couple of moments ago, and we've got to try and explain, as we do to students and others, about just what you said, that science is not an absolute. It is a process. And the one thing that's beautiful about science is that it's self-correcting. Because if you find out something and the parameters change and the situation changes and you re-examine it, you can come out with a different answer. And you need to be open-minded that science that might come up with a particular finding that might lead to a particular recommendation, when the situation changes, when the data changes, then all of a sudden you've got to make a change in the recommendation. A classic example is that we have models and the model is project this amount of deaths or this amount of whatever. And as I've always said, and I didn't mean it in a way that is um, denigrating to the modelers, mm -hmm. but models are only as good as the assumptions that you put into the model. Mm -hmm. And then when data comes along and says that assumption is wrong, then you change the model. And sometimes people can't understand. They say, well, wait a minute. You said we would have 120,000 deaths, and now you're saying we're going to have 50,000, or now you're going to say we have 200,000. But that's because the data are changing. And I think that's the point I believe you're making about science. Science is a process of trying to determine the truth. Yeah. The truth at that particular time is based on data and evidence. And go with the data and evidence. And when the data change... You've got to change in what your opinion is based on the data. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, that is a, a really critical point, and it is so hard, I think, to communicate through because it means that the message shifts 
at the top lines, but the bottom line doesn't change, is that we are trying to interpret the best we can with evidence and data. We, we asked our, our listeners uh, what questions they had for you, and there were two big ones that kept coming up. So I hope that uh, we can have a little bit more of your time. The, the first is, are we going to go back to school in the fall? Um, this, is, this is the question that everybody keeps asking, and I know that there is no yes or no answer to that. But in, in your mind, what are the things that we're going to need to do to be able to send our kids to school in the fall? Yeah, okay, so I'll, I'll make a couple of statements that I think will ultimately get to the answer. Hmm. First of all, when we say we, we gotta think that this is the United States of America, which is a really big country, and very, very big differences in the dynamics of the outbreak, depending hmm. upon where you are. If you're in Florida now, mm-hmm. it's different than if you're in Casper, Wyoming. And even New York, who got hit very badly, is much, much better off right now than in Southern California and in Arizona and in Texas. So when you talk about schools, the first thing you have to define is where are you and what is the dynamics of the infection? Point number one. Point number two, in general, to the best of our capability, we should try as best as possible to get children back to school. And the reason we say that is because the unintended consequences and the negative ripple effects of keeping children out of school can have significant deleterious consequences. Mm -hmm. Then you get to number three, and number three is a big but. And the but is to making sure when you do that, you provide the capability and the resources to at first priority is to protect the health and the welfare of the children. So you don't want to send children back to school with a substantial risk to their health. You've got to do whatever you can to mitigate any negative effects on their health. So A, you make a decision about where in the country you are. B, the fundamental principle is to try as best as possible to get the children back to school. And C, if you do, provide the wherewithal to defend, preserve, and protect their health and their welfare. I appreciate that. That's a, that's a very helpful framework. The second question that we get a lot of is, uh, you know, we are, all of us, recognizing the potential risk and some of us doing more to protect ourselves than others. And, you know, there's a big question about about having antibodies for uh, this virus if, you know, you, you had a presumed positive or you have a confirmed positive test that, you know, if you were to get an antibody test and you have uh, antibodies, uh, that they would free you from having to necessarily do all the social distancing that is recommended. So the question is, should I get an antibody test? Which test? And will that free me of having to social distance? That's a question we got uh, from a lot of people for you. Uh, no, yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so let's go through them. Um, first of all, assuming that the antibody test that you're taking has been validated by the FDA or the NIH, because the, one of the real confusing issues is that there have been many tests out there that have not been validated. Mm. And they're inaccurate, they're not sensitive, they're not specific. But let's assume you have a test that's good. It's been validated. The issue is, you can make a reasonable assumption that if you've been infected and you have antibodies, even though some people who recover don't have antibodies, yet they've recovered, not quite sure what role cell-mediated immunity or natural immunity plays in that. But putting that aside, you can assume that you have a reasonable degree of protection for a finite period of time. The Mm -hmm. unknowns are, how long does that last 
What is the durability? Mm-hmm. So you could wind up doing an antibody test and have an antibody titer that actually is pretty low. I mean, it obviously allowed you to recover from infection, but does it protect you from reinfection if the immunity uh, wanes after a period of time? So mm-hmm. one of the things that we will know as we get further into this, in uh, six months, a year, a year and a half, we'll know what immunity really means from an antibody standpoint, and we'll know what the durability is. Right now, we don't. But what we do know is that you can make a reasonable assumption that if you have antibodies, you have a degree of protection. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that, is, that is really helpful. And um, uh, we really, really appreciate you and your time and your leadership. Um, and I think I speak for all of us in the, in the public health community uh, when I say thank you for your service and, and all of us in this country when I say you're a national treasure. So uh, stay safe, stay healthy, protect that voice. And, um, you know, it's a good thing that you're a, you're a relatively young man working, uh, you know, days that start at one o'clock. So. <laughs> thank you very much, Abdul. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me on your show. The privilege was ours. Thank you again. Take care. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. The president really wants kids to go back to school in the fall. The president tweeted out this morning that he disagrees with CDC guidelines on reopening schools. He's also now threatening schools nationwide that he'll try to cut funding if they refuse to reopen on time. I really want kids to go back to school in the fall too, but I really want them to go back safely. The threat of funding cuts aren't going to send our kids back to school safely. What will? Contact tracing, masking, testing, and lockdowns in communities with runaway transmission. We need leadership, not threats. We've needed leadership. And just about the only person to provide it in our government right now has been that man you heard from just now. And yet the Trump administration is trying to sideline him. Ask yourself what kind of leader would sideline their top infectious disease doctor in the middle of a pandemic. Well, Dr. Fauci, our listeners support you. Keep fighting the good fight. Dr. Fauci, thank you for all that you do. And thanks for your service again. Thank you for all you're doing for our country. Thank you for your service. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for all your work leading out public health efforts here in the United States. Thank Thank you, you, Dr. Fauci. If you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Taki Asazawa and Alex Huguiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geisman. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>